0: Good morning. Thank you, Ben. Welcome back. If you left for spring break, you're home again. Hey, uh, before we get started started with our learning time, I wanted to uh, let you know it snuck up on me. This is what I do for a living. Easter, Resurrection Sunday is just two weeks away. Two weeks away. So uh, we need to, in light of uh, the influx of... The thousands of people that will be coming here, I need to let you know we're changing things up as we do each year. We'll have an eight o'clock service now. Eight o'clock, nine fifteen, and eleven. Eight o'clock, nine fifteen, eleven. The eight o'clock service doesn't have any children's ministry in the other buildings, uh, so just keep that in mind. But here's here's the big ask. Like we did last year, we would we need. Last year, we needed about 800 people to come to first hour, and, and that's exactly what the attendance was. This year, we'll probably need closer to 1,000 people to come to the first hour, 8 o'clock service, so that there's hopefully enough room for the other two, 9, 15, and 11s. So if you don't have kids or your kids are a little bit older, and they can sit through the 8 o'clock service. Would you please consider coming to the 8 o'clock service on April 1st, Resurrection Sunday? Like, no, I mean, right now, I'm going to ask you. <laughs> Could you, could you just raise your hand and, and maybe I'll just take it, get an idea how much trouble we're getting into? Okay. Also, I want you to continue to think about that. Um, and I'll tell you more about some other things that we'll try to do to provide more seats for everyone uh, on, on that day. The second thing is that 9, 15, and 11 o'clock, we still need just a handful of people to serve in our children's ministry and also as greeters or hospitality, whatever the context of that is. As a matter of fact, we even made the bulletin a tear-off that you can put in the plate if you want to help in that way, drive a cart or say hello to people outside. But everyone, everyone's a greeter on Resurrection Sunday. You know, we say every believer's a minister. On Resurrection Sunday, every believer's a greeter. Actually, you don't have to be a believer, just be nice, how about that? So I deputize you greeters on that day. So please, by all means, uh, maybe fill out that card, or you can talk to someone in the lobby. Uh, there's a table there. Uh, in your bulletin, there's a little card if you would like to invite a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, And there's some other cards around as well. I think they're at the Welcome Center. Be bringing people. And then finally, parking is going to be a very big issue, and I'll tell you more details next week about uh, some of our parking options. But I wanted you to know that the parking garage of one of the El Chalons building in the Echelon parking lot. We have full access to that on the weekends. That's kind of ours, and so we'd love you to start using that even before Easter. There's an entrance on the street side, on the Jollyville, or what, uh, yeah, Jollyville side, but there's also an entrance towards the back uh, right in front of the Echelon building itself. Okay, take that for a test drive. If you have a truck on Resurrection Sunday, we want you to park out in the parking lot in the grassy area so that you can say to your wife, told you, Told you I needed four wheel drive. <laughs> this is for Jesus. You didn't believe me, but here we are on Resurrection Sunday, parking in the grass. So keep that in mind. Let's begin our time with a word of prayer, and then we'll get. To, we have a great passage. One of the oh, it's a great passage. Lord Jesus, we do lift up our time to you now and our learning time that we would uh, have open hearts, that we would be reflective in the in. The, and our choices and our values, that your spirit would speak to us, that Paul's words, the power of the truth of of these paragraphs would make their way, not just into our intellect, but our emotions, our will, that we might live a a life that's not wasted, that's glorifying you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, Dr. Howard Hendricks, who uh, used to teach at Dallas Theological Seminary, did an extensive study in the lives of the people of Bible characters. He looked at the biographies in the Bible, and there's a, almost a 100 or so biographies in the Old and New Testament. And he looked further to see that out of those 100 highlighted people, two thirds of them did not finish well. Two thirds of the people fell into some context of immorality or left the faith denied their belief and their commitment to God. In other words, there's not a lot of people that finished well. It's hard to finish well. And today we're going to look at a person that did. The Apostle Paul did not waste his life. He, today we're going to look and we're going to read and we're going to learn about how to do this. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist denomination, and he was asked, how is it that your members are so faithful. And he said, our people die well. Today, we're going to learn how to die well, a good death. We're going to be looking at Second Timothy chapter 4, which is the last chapter of Paul's life. And by that, I mean that literally. It is the last chapter of anything that he will ever write, and it is the last section of his experience on this planet. He has a new cellmate It's death. The emperor Nero has played his lot and sentenced Paul to death, and now Saul just waits. And he has that long stare into death, and he must reflect on the life that he lived. There it is. No more time to change. No place to go. Time has run out. And if you look at Paul's life, if you look at this passage, you're going to see that Paul celebrates this. The the mood is resolve. The mood is, I live with no regret. And I think if you listen carefully, you can hear this soulish sigh of relief that he made it. He made it. He finished well. Because he, he he didn't live a life where he stayed busy so that he might be distracted. He, he wasn't uh, Willie Loman, who was self-delusional. He lived his life full, and I would even say he lived it overflowing. And he's writing from a Roman prison, and he's going to look back on his journey with Christ, as you would imagine in this last letter, this last chapter, these last paragraphs, and then, he's gonna look, and then he'll be looking forward to his greeting, his, his meeting of his king. I want you to listen, especially as I read this paragraph to you, listen to how Paul embraces death. Listen to how he looks longingly towards that. Feel how there's no fear. I'd like you to, if you don't mind, just, just close your eyes as I read you just a few sentences and imagine these from the lips of Paul. He says... I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished, I finished the race. I kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. That the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but everyone who longs for the day of the Lord's appearance. Amen. That's how Paul looks at death. He embraces it. Look, look what he says in verse 6. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. The idea of a drink offering, he's Jewish, and it's this part of his life that he saw regularly. On the daily offerings, in the morning and the evening, they would, they would sacrifice a lamb. And as, as part of that offering, quite often they would, on those hot coals, as, as the meat was burning, they would have a goblet of wine and this would be the drink offering and they would pour the wine on the hot coals and it would send forth if you read every passage in the old testament talks about this it says a, a fragrant aroma a pleasing aroma it would send up that's what the point of it was this this sweet smell to god this poured out drink offering and wine is symbolic of joy in the old testament and so Paul's saying, you know, he said in Romans chapter 12, he says, your, your life should be a living sacrifice. And now he's saying, and your death, my death, it's a sacrifice as well. He's, he's, he says, I, I'm, I've already been poured out. I mean, the this wine has left this goblet. We're done. This is over. And I am gladly giving my life as a final expression of giving something back to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying to Timothy in this, in this picture here, Timothy, when you read that, that the emperor Nero has taken my life, that is not what happened. This is, this is the Lord's will and my privilege to be a sweet aroma that my blood, when it hits that pavement, when it hits that, that, that stone, it will be an aroma of sacrifice that pleases the Lord because someone did not waste their life. My departure is near, he says, and that word departure is brilliant in its meaning because depending upon who heard that word, they heard similar things but different. If a sailor heard that word departed, he knew it meant pull anchor, trim the sails, we're leaving this harbor, we never liked it here anyway. If a military man or woman heard that, it meant it's time to break camp, this battlefield, we're finished, let's go home. If a person was wrecked with suffering and burden, something that they were heavy laden with, to be departed meant you can leave it now because you're done. And when Paul thinks about life and when he thinks about death, he thinks about leaving a harbor he didn't want to be at, setting his, setting his sights on going home after combat and not having to bear the burden any longer. He longs for this thing. He is... You know, labored for 30 years and more, preaching throughout the Roman Empire. And at this point in history, for all he knows, this is still a pretty small sect of believers that are mostly all over and are persecuted. So my point is, there's not a lot of success to show in Paul's life, but that's not how Paul keeps score. The results of his ministry are entrusted to the sovereignty and the power of God's Spirit. The reason he's confident is because he knew he obeyed. He knew he did what he was, he was called to do. But the first part I want you to see in this is, is that if you, if you want to, the, the key to life, the key to a life that's worth living, the key to a life that's not wasted, the key to life is embracing your certain death. The key to life is embracing certain death. And then you're free. Uh, As some of you know, uh, my brother passed away nine years ago on vacation rather suddenly and unexpectedly, and then uh, four months after that, a very dear friend for decades uh, that I grew up with, and we were so close, people, we looked alike, and people thought we were brothers. We were just inseparable, and he was found in some bushes uh, on South Congress, and he died from life on the street. We learned how to drink beer together, and he never learned how to stop. And it finally caught up to him. So both these men my age that I love dearly were taken. And I had been planning to some degree on living long term, like as much as 70. (laughs) And it never occurred to me to plan short term. The certainty of my death, but not necessarily when I was planning it. And and so because of, of those circumstances, I added to my calendar. On June 12th, for some reason I don't know, but it says Matt Cassidy died. Repeat every year. Send warnings at 30 days and 90 days. There's something freeing about that. You want to live a life without regret? You have to keep the end in mind and work towards that. It's a little bit morbid to envision your own headstone, but when you can grasp the inevitability of your passing, soon to be forgotten, it'll clarify the way you think and what your priorities are and who your friends are. That's what Paul is doing here. He looks forward to death. He looks forward to meeting his Savior. He has longed for that day. It's not a fear for him. It's something that gives him an opportunity to show his love for his king. Now, when we eavesdrop on the rest of this section, I want us to be looking for the fact that he's going to look, in, even in, in the present circumstance of his situation, he will still be discipling, making a disciple, being a guide. He's going to look at the, at the fullness of his life in, in hindsight, and he's going to say, I suffered all the way to the end, and then he's going to look to the future, and that's, that's what he's been living for. So keep in mind these three ways to make sure that you don't waste your life. the first one is his present ministry. Right now, in this book, Paul is still making disciples, still being a guide. He's, the reason he's confident about his coming death is because and meeting Jesus Christ is because he's. He's doing what he was told. He's being part of fulfilling Christ's commission to go and make disciples. And he's doing it even to the end of his life. This is the last chapter of anything that Paul will write. And I want you to see how he's looking at his Padawan, his disciple, his Timothy, and he he gives him a final exhortation and charge that is like none other in any of his writings. You can feel. Right? The urgency of this, as he's going to tell Timothy the way to live, and he's going he's gonna to say it in a form of an oath. Look what he says. This is, these are strong words. So he's discipling this. He's the guide for this Timothy. And he says, "...in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge." Preach the word. And then he goes on, preach the word in season, out of season, whether you're ready or not, doesn't matter the circumstances. Other people are going to not care anymore. You stay on the truth of the gospel. But I want you to see here that he's saying, in the presence of God and Christ, you can't pull rank any higher than that. And then he says, in, in light of the, his presence and his kingdom, in view of his appearing, that phrase, in view of his appearing, along with in his kingdom, he will summarize later and say, on that day. His appearing will be on that day. And Paul, right now, in prison, with sharing a meal with death, he is still in the context of discipling his little friend, Timothy, and he says... This is how to live. This is what you aim for. This is your great expectation. Make all your decisions based on this endpoint, His appearing on that day, that appearing. Some of you know how exciting it can be to look forward to something with great anticipation, just to see something with great anticipation. You've either done it or you know someone that have, you've seen it somewhere on, on the internet where someone uh, in the context of, uh, of a wedding. If, 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 if my wife and I are at our wedding, she's going to sit on the aisle near the front. And the reason is, is because she wants to see the appearing. When the back door opens, and they swing open, and the bride sees the groom, and the groom sees the bride, and it's, look, did look they're looking at him. Yeah, did you see the way she sees you? Back and forth. Looking forward to the appearing is the point. Some of you have seen when someone might have come back, a tour duty, and, and they're exiting the plane or the transport vehicle, and, and they're looking for family, right? They're looking for that viewing. And the family's on the other side of the barricade. They're looking for the viewing. They're expecting this appearance of someone they love. That's what Paul's telling Timothy to live for. And you, listen, friends, you can imagine, use every bit of your imagination of what it must be like to view the appearing on that day of the king. And it won't be like that. It will be so much more. You will weep. Paul says, in the context of his discipleship, that's how you live for that day. All choices lead to that day. The re- what I want to apply here is that, that Paul is confident that he has not wasted his life because he's part of the Great Commission, He's part of the great amb- uh, ambition of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Make disciples. Paul said, okay. He's making disciples. And, and, and every believer in some context is, is supposed to be part of making disciples. Be a guide. That's the theme of our whole series. Are you a guide to someone, anyone? Well, I am to my children and family members. That's not what the passage means. That's assumed. It says you know, godly men, 2 Timothy 2.2, find trustworthy men and, and make sure you give them this valuable treasure of the gospel. In Titus it says godly women, find women that are worth the investment and give them this precious treasure, the gospel. Because when, when, <laughs> when death holds your hand and there's no more time... And you can't change. You're going to want to have been part of God's commission. You will have. You want to have left the treasure behind with someone that can be trusted with it. And that's why Paul knows that he hasn't wasted his life. The second way is the reason Paul is exciting excited for his transition is because he had suffered for a great period of time. Hardship all the way to the end. He suffered hardship all the way to the end. It's harder than you think. When I was in seminary, one of the first classes uh, I was involved in, the the professor was just trying to get to know everyone, and and so he said, yeah, tell us your name and maybe what you might think the Lord will use in your life upon graduation. And there were some, you know, big big hitters in the room, uh, and some of them were... Uh, Hoping to go back, and one said, "I want to be part of changing the spiritual uh, atmosphere of Poland." One of them was hoping to be the director of the largest Chinese mission organization in the world, and one of the guys said, "I just want to live my whole life faithful to my wife and to my Savior." And there was like some snickering, you know, especially comparatively speaking. The professor wasn't one of one of the guys that was just raised in the academy. He he had he was more like one of those 50 year old master sergeants that had been around and seen a lot of things and suffered himself. And he stopped everyone and he said, That gentleman is the right answer. Faithful to your mate, faithful to your savior. Because who are we kidding? Starting's easy, finishing well is hard. Look, a new diet and exercise program. Isn't that great? <laughs> right? Yeah. Marriage. For the most part, getting married can be fun. You know, the wedding itself can be, I love how everybody's thinking about me all the time. Marriage, that's hard work. 30 years of it, where you're deeply in love, that's (laughs) long-suffering. And a whole lot of forgiveness. The Christian life is very much the same. You come to Jesus Christ, there's some spectacular stories, there's all sorts of freedom involved, there's a sense of renewed innocence, and then, then it's work. And Paul's saying, I cannot wait for that day because I have endured hardship all the way to the end. And he's going to use three athletic metaphors here, and I want you to see that it's all about endurance. It's all past tense. You won't see this in any of those writings because he, he knows he's done. So he's, he's reflecting backwards now. In the past, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Three athletic metaphors. And I think it's interesting. Fight the good fight is the predominant one that's setting the mood for what it means to be living the authentic Christian life in a hostile culture. Fight the good fight. You guys ever played any sports? Ever played volleyball? played soccer, even played football. When you ask somebody if they've done a combat sport, have you noticed they never associate the word play with it? No one plays wrestling. No one plays boxing. You ask them, I'm a boxer. I'm a wrestler. I don't play. I try to survive and hurt someone else in the mate. That's and the point is, he's saying here, no, no, let's talk about this, the spiritual life over the long haul. It's a fight. It's not playing. And, he, and he's, he's saying, you've got to stay in the fight. Fight the good fight. And Paul answered the bell every time. Independent of circumstances and his situation, he stood up, ding, that's for me. Fight the good fight. He says, keep on fighting. The next thing he says is he says, I finished the course or I finished the race. And some translations make it possessive. He says, I finished my course. And the idea there is, well, the reason some commentaries will do that is it's the idea that he, since the day he was knocked off that horse and blinded on the road to Damascus, he has been on a course, not his course that he picked, the course God had for him. And he chose to follow the course that God had for him, and he finished that course. Not the course he wanted. He did not want the thorn in the flesh. He did not want all of those beatings and scourgings. Nothing he wanted, no part of being slandered so often. But he did it anyway. Not on the course that you would pick? Too bad. It's it's God's course for your life for the most part finish it finish the race Paul says never stop running and then finally he says he kept the faith and the idea there is and it's the theme of all three books uh, to the pastors that he he guarded the purity of the truth of the gospel he didn't dilute it he didn't he didn't blink it's so easy isn't it don't and the gospel is uh, is offensive by nature the the boundaries of orthodoxy are are troubling, And it's, it's tempting to shave off and cut and mold those things that cause people difficulty. And he says, no, I didn't do that. I kept the faith. I think when I was reading this over and over again, I, I couldn't help but think if Paul were writing this today, I think the modern equivalency of this, would, this idea of a retiring, uh, enduring athlete would be the contemporary uh, tradition of when wrestlers retire, their whole career, they will leave their shoes on the mat in the center. It's an, it's an extremely emotional experience you might be able to see it at the NCA Championships, I think of this weekend, and you'll see guys, and they're done with the sport. And there's not a lot of fanfare. It's a private moment, and they'll shut everything down for the most part, and this one person will quietly by himself, take off those shoes, and he'll leave them there and walk away, and he's leaving his whole lifestyle. Because it's a sport that requires a consistent commitment to agony and insane hours of, of working out and stupid diets. And everything they know for who they are, they're leaving. And Paul's saying, and, and the, the idea there is, is, they're leaving it all on the mat, they're done. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying this the Christian life, it's a fight, it is a marathon it is a dedication to truth. It's a fight. It's a marathon. It's a dedication to truth. And today, you can believe anything you want. You can believe in nothing. You just cannot believe in Orthodox Christianity. I mean, I never thought I'd say this out loud in my lifetime, but this country, I never thought we would be here in my lifetime. Where somebody like, I'm just going to say people, I don't mean to be political or in any There's no other context than the shock of the Tim Tebow factor. The the guy's a gentleman who loves Jesus. No athlete has had to endure the character assassination of this person for being good. I saw saw, um, a uh, congressional confirmation just a month ago were senators with, with TV sets rolling, attacking a man's belief in Orthodox Christianity, where finally the person just said, hey, I'm, I'm not alone in these views. This is, this is what Christians believe. Didn't matter. And then, again, I don't mean to be political, but, but the vice president, Michael Pence, he seems to be a legitimate, honest, God-fearing person, at least from this distance, and he's ridiculed, for hoping to have a spirit so tender that he might hear from his Savior. What happened? The natural thing happened. Because the Christian life is a fight. It's a marathon. And it's a dedication to truth. And you've got to endure all the way to the end. So Paul says, I'm looking forward. I'm not living a life that's wasted. I have no regrets because I am still in the process of making a disciple. I look back in my life, and I finished. And then finally, this is what really turns this man. He looks forward because it will all be worth it. He says in verse 8, and now, and now... There is in store for me a crown of righteousness, I'm sorry, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, oh yeah, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. On that day. His last letter, the last thing he ever writes, three times he says, on that day. Why is that? Because it's on his mind. I think he really says it four times because we saw at the very beginning of this chapter, we live for his appearance and his kingdom. It's the same thing. That's what it means on that day, the days of of his appearance and the day of his kingdom. And so Paul's saying, this is it. This is what I'm living for. Who's that? Who? He says, Jesus, the righteous judge. Interesting title, and why is that? Because it's, he's not just appearing like what he mentioned earlier in the chapter. He's appearing to give out awards, the righteous crown that I'm going to receive because I finished well. And the idea here of the crown is not like a royal crown, diadem would be the word. It's, it's, he's keeping the, the athletic metaphor, and it's, it's the emperor putting on a wreath crown for an athlete that has done well. So if it's troublesome to you to, to think, you know, in that context, think of it like this, that uh, at our, in our family we had some drama with some of the children and uh, math. And so it would be like a, if one of our kids worked really hard for a math grade, you know, we, we paid for tutoring, uh, I yelled at them a lot, they cried a lot. That's how you teach math, I think. And, and so just picture one of the kids running home, right, with a report card saying, I made the best grade I could have. The tutoring was worth the money, Dad. The yelling maybe, I don't know, but the tears, the tears are paying off. And look what happened. The righteous judge, my math teacher, says, this is my grade. And that's what, that's Paul, that's, that's what Paul's looking at here. He's looking at his, his future, and he's saying, I did not waste my life. And, and, and you... You should be encouraged that at his appearing, the righteous judge has been watching you. It is within the context of his righteousness to know what you have or are having to endure to become like Christ in all of life. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. I know, the judge says, how hard that is. And, it, and your, your agony is not in vain. On that day... He will know that you stayed pure while your friends left, and it, it, it's as though they were rewarded for, for dropping the standards that God had for them. And on that day, you'll receive awards. Some of you, going home is one of the hardest things you can face because you're openly mocked or humiliated or ignored or talked down to. And Paul says... On that day, do you think the groom doesn't know the way you live sacrificially for his bride, the way you serve her, the way you give towards her, the way you care and defend the bride of Jesus Christ, you think the groom, the righteous judge, Isn't going to want to talk to you about that when he appears? Oh, he will. He's going to want to talk to you. This is the word of the Lord. Fight the good fight. You keep fighting because on that day, center ring, the referee will hold up your hand. This is the word of the Lord. You keep running because on that day, the great emperor will put that wreath over your head. You keep believing what's true. You keep holding tight to those truths of God's promises and his nature, the gospel itself. And he will be the one who puts that metal around your neck. The best is yet to come finish well. You have to finish strong. Finish strong. Finish. Is it the distance? Is that what it is? You can't see the finish line. It just seems so far away. You can't see the finish line when you start a marathon. So you have to, you have to learn another way to run. And I think our 12-step Athletes will tell you, 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 just, you just need to make it to the next meal. I mean, look, you've already made it to breakfast. That counts. Is it too hard to, is it too hard to finish? I don't know. Just, just make it to lunch. <laughs> look, you made it to lunch. Now just make it to dinner. Boom. If you can get to the pillow, if you can just get to the pillow and you go to sleep, Tomorrow, you start all new again, and then you just get to breakfast, and then you make it to lunch. You can't see the finish line. You just have to get to the next place. You just have to take the next step, and next thing you know, you're crossing that finish line. You have to, you have to finish strong. You have to finish strong. Is it the loneliness Is it the feeling that no one understands or is in the suffering that you're involved in? Is that what it is? There are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed that idol. You just haven't met one. What you need is a running buddy. That's your prayer. You do what you need to do. You go to the places you need to go. You can't do this alone. Loneliness you just need someone running on the path next to you. Finish strong. Is it the grief and the sorrow or the pain? Is that is that what's calling you? It's only temporary. It soon will pass. These are just birth pangs. They lead to something greater. Keep fighting. Finish well. It's a marathon. It's a dedication to truth. Because there will be an appearance of his kingdom. And there will be an award ceremony. And then it's all worth it. Don't waste your life. Would you bow your heads? I'd like to talk to you. I won't apologize, though I feel I should. But I, I will. I'm gonna. I am the senior pastor of this church. The, the bride of Christ, and I am also an elder. And so you need to hear these words with the weight of the office. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and Jesus, he will judge the living and the dead. And in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, Grace. You preach the word. You be prepared in every context. You correct, you rebuke, Encourage each other with great patience and careful instruction. Look, the time is coming when people, uh, they're not going to put up with sound doctrine. They're going to go places that suit their own desires. They're going to gather around some teachers that can draw a crowd, that can tickle their ears. They'll turn their ears away from the real truth and turn aside to myths. But you, you listen. You keep your head in all situations. You stay sober and endure hardship. You do the work of the evangelist. You do all your duties as a minister. Fill them up. And then on that day, you'll be ready to be poured out like a drink offering. When the time of your departure is near, And you will say, I have fought the good fight and I have finished this race and I kept the faith and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only me, but all those who long for that appearing. Lord, let that be the beat of our soul that we might live for that day. And all God's people said, Amen.